Hey, it's Lucy King here. Thanks so much for listening to Making Contact. If you want to support our work all year long, please consider signing up to make a monthly donation. Just $5 a month will help fund our social justice reporting all year long. Now, here's the show. Making, making, making contact. Making contact. <laughs> Today on Making Contact, we're going to Mexico, where one organization is tackling racism. We have a saying in the Mexican society that goes, marry a white person to improve the race. In Mexico, it's so normal to say that. The grandmothers say that to the granddaughters, and it's like, you know, you have to find someone whiter. And our producer, Anthony Wallace, takes us back in time to talk about how lies the Spanish conquistadors told about the Aztecs have led to racist tropes that still affect brown Mexicans today. Once things like this start to get repeated over and over again, even by scholars, it becomes absolute fact, almost impossible to dislodge. Stay with us. Calle Madero is a street that cuts through the heart of the historic center of Mexico City. The road starts at an Art Nouveau-style palace topped with a massive yellow and orange dome. As you walk east, the road narrows. Old brick Spanish colonial-style buildings with skinny porches lean in on you as you move through the crowd. Finally, the claustrophobic street opens up to a massive plaza. This is El Zocalo. Centro Historico in Mexico City. And today, at least architecturally, it looks a lot like Europe. But if you look closely, you'll see signs that this place was once something much different. Here's what I mean. In one corner of the plaza, there's this huge Gothic cathedral, but black and red volcanic rocks bulge out from the church's walls, something you'd never see in Europe. And in the shadow of that cathedral, I spot the man I'm here to see. Hey. Hola. How's it going? My friend. <laughs> Good to see you again. Good to see you again, my friend. I met Ismael Rivera a few months ago on my first trip to Mexico City. He was my tour guide, introducing me to the city's hidden past. Today, he's going to do it again. I'm from this city, Mexico Tenochtitlan. I'm a historian, an anthropologist, and nowadays I'm a cultural guide also. Those volcanic rocks in the church above us used to be a part of an entirely different monument, an entirely different city. You see the rock, the red rock? Yeah. This is the Sonte rock. This is a volcanic rock. The Aztec or Mexicas, they used this rock to build their own temples, palaces, and houses. So they took apart the Aztec buildings and rebuilt Spanish buildings. Rebuilt Spanish buildings, exactly. In 1978, a few years before Ismael was born, Workers here were digging to install an underground power transformer. They happened to strike a piece of the buried city of Tenochtitlan, the capital of the mighty Aztec empire. That accident triggered a major archeological dig right here in the city center that would finally uncover a sliver of the grand old city. For centuries before that discovery, the mainstream history of this area was written by the Spanish conquistadors who colonized Mexico. That story has not always been kind to the people that originally inhabited this lost world, the Aztecs. And it's not just inaccurate. It feeds present-day prejudices. Ismail wants to undo that story, one tour at a time. There's a lot of mistakes and misunderstandings uh, uh, Aztec culture. 
and it's my responsibility to to explain to Mexican people and other visitors from other countries the other version about our yeah. history. We walk up to the edge of the excavated hole just steps from the cathedral. We lean on the metal railing and look down at a portal into another world, the exposed ruins of Tenochtitlan. It's an archaeological site roughly the size of two football fields. Underneath, is, there's the remains of the ancient city, Tenochtitlan city, Aztec city. We're also, right now, we're standing on, like, against railing. Yes. Because the, the remains of the temple are below us. Yes, exactly. Um, five meters at least. Five meters, 15 five feet, meters. 20 feet. The Spanish arrived in Mexico City 500 years ago. And they did the same thing they did all across the Americas. They plopped their new colonial city right on top of the old indigenous one. For example, underneath the cathedral, there are remains of the three Aztec temples. We're looking down at Tenochtitlan's central monument, the crumbling outline of the Aztecs' Templo Mayor. In 1520, it was a 200-foot-tall pyramid, the center of the empire. If you look closely, you can still see elaborate stone carvings of mighty snakeheads. In its day, this place was the height of power and culture in North America. This is the place. This is the place to, uh, to start to know Mexico. The central plaza hummed with the sounds of conch shell trumpets, people exchanging cacao bean currency for tamales and insect egg delicacies. There were floating gardens and two-story buildings painted and covered in flags and flowers. People glowed in cloaks made of neon-colored feathers. The Spanish that got to see this place in its former glory said it was like being in a dream. But we normally don't get all this color from mainstream Western history. Unlike ancient Rome or Greece, the Aztecs are often portrayed as merely violent, without any important redeeming qualities. And those lessons linger. Standing just beside the pyramid ruins and cathedral, Ismail and I asked a bunch of tourists walking by, people from the US, Mexico, and beyond, what do you think of the Aztecs? Well, interesting. Uh, I don't really think about them, uh, if I'm being frank. Oh, man. Um, I didn't know too much about the Aztecs before. But I do know like that the temples were used for religious purposes, for human sacrifice, which is also pretty dark. They, she thinks that they like to do human sacrifices for any reason. I guess if there's one good thing that Catholicism brought, it was that to, to end human sacrifices. <laughs> Over the past 500 years, an image of the Aztecs and other native peoples of Mexico has solidified in popular culture. The story is that they were brutal, devoutly dedicated to bloodthirsty gods that demanded they murder lots of people on a regular basis. So they'd cut the beating hearts out of their victims' chests with a razor-sharp obsidian blade as a crowd of onlookers cheers wildly. Like in the gory Mel Gibson movie, Apocalypto. And when the conquistadors came, these violent and bizarrely spiritual Aztecs confused the Spanish newcomers for gods, paving the way to total defeat. Like in the animated kids movie, The Road to El Dorado. <laughs> My lords, I am Zekelkon, your devoted high priest and speaker for the gods. When the Aztecs show up in fiction, they're very often the bad guys. 
lot of times the main character is an innocent outsider from another land or even a time traveler, and they're suddenly subject to sacrifice. Monsieur, Monsieur Sacrifice, one which will satisfy the gods forever. Today, historians that have studied the physical evidence and the actual records left by the Aztecs know that while they did practice human sacrifice on a smaller scale, it was nothing like you see in the movies. They did not slay tens of thousands of people at a time and pile their bodies up so that the sun would rise the next day. And there's no good reason to think they mistook the Spanish for gods. In fact, the Aztecs built an empire not so different from ancient Rome or Greece. They made art and science and fought for their own survival and power. They were human. The caricatured version of them comes from the Spanish conquerors who had clear reason to paint the Aztecs as barbaric. This story is just to refuse and deny, deny the greatness of the Aztec culture. So that's the point. Ismail and others want to tell the story right, because those misconceptions about the past feed racism in the present. When I was a kid, some of my friends called me Negro, no? But back then I was like, I associated Negro with bad because everyone thought back then that Negro is bad, no? I met Jose Antonio Aguilar Contreras in Mexico City's quiet Juarez neighborhood, luscious with purple blooming jacaranda trees. So we're in the fourth floor. Okay. Um, With no elevator. (laughs) We made our way to the top of the building where Jose's organization has its small office. On the wall is a neon pink sign with their name, Racismo MX. They monitor, research, and raise awareness of racism in Mexico. I hope that uh, children and young people, when they look at themselves in the mirror, they see beauty and they see potential and they see success. No, I, 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 I want that because probably when I was a kid, I didn't see that in the mirror. No, because I, I didn't see myself in the media. I didn't see myself in the narratives. And you saw all the artists and they were all white. And I, I, I wondered what if I want to be like them? I couldn't be there. I don't see myself. No. Or if I want to be in, on television, I should play the role of the thief or, or the drug dealer or the, you know, the employee, you know, that everyone hates, etc. etc. Racismo MX is making a documentary. They do workshops, conferences, consulting with big companies on inclusivity. And their podcast... El Elefante en la Sala. Un podcast de Racismo MX. Hola, ¿qué tal? Podcast escucha. It's called El Elefante en la Sala or the elephant in the room. Because in its modern history, Jose says Mexico has denied racism and embraced the myth of the mestizo. That's the idea that all Mexicans are the same, homogenous descendants of both European and indigenous ancestors. So we live in this uh, fantasy of being mestizo, and uh, therefore it doesn't make sense to talk about racism, right? It's like, why are you talking about racism if we are all the same, we're all mestizos, no? We're all this kind of combination. But it's not true, because if you look at the data, if you look not only the quantitative data, but also the qualitative studies, it's a systematic problem, no? Afro-descendant people, black people, uh, indigenous people, mestizo people with brown skin and indigenous features, they live racism in many ways. Today, 
Mexico's poorest states, Chiapas, Guerrero, and Oaxaca, are among those with the highest portions of indigenous people. On average, dark-skinned Mexicans earn 40% less and complete three and a half fewer years of school than light-skinned Mexicans. And in Jose's own life, moments of discrimination have added up. We arrived to this nightclub and they said, everyone can, can get in except you. And I was like, why? Because if you go in, the quality of my place falls. And uh, for example, if you open an app here in, in Mexico, Grindr or Tinder, and gay men usually say, no Asians, no fats, no brown skin. And it's- Really? Yeah. In a, in a, in a racialized country like Mexico, you find that, no? <laughs> Surprisingly enough, accepting my homosexuality was easier than accepting my, my racial reality, you know, that that was an issue. And then finally, when I was around 30, um, in my 40s, but when I was 30, I accepted that I'm a Prieto, I'm a brown skin, you know, I come from indigenous, you know, and I don't deserve that, that kind of treatment. So that's why I started all this movement. <laughs> Jose says this kind of discrimination fits right into the old Spanish story that the indigenous people of Mexico, like the Aztecs, were uncivilized and dangerous. Many people, regardless of their identity or, or tone of their skin, whatever, they can uh, agree with that narrative, no? Like they were barbarians, this is a slaughterhouse, and this was bad. Mm -hmm. I didn't grow up looking at the Aztecs the same as the Greeks, no? Because of course, we have this universal history class, no? And we saw those great advancements. I was once in Italy, and I went just behind the church in Rome, and you find a lot of skulls, like in walls, right? And I remembered a lot of the uh, Sempantli, which is kind of the same here in the Aztec world, where they, you know, piled up all the skulls in, in, in sticks, right? So I'm not trying to justify the Aztecs. I, I believe those kind of things happened, but it happened because we were humans. Back in Centro Historico, Ismail takes me to a museum of Aztec artifacts recovered from Templo Mayor. Take a look. He shows me massive carved stone monoliths, sculptures, and hundreds of obsidian knives. So these are like little offering, ofrenda? Yes, ofrenda. So these were found inside the temple? Yes, in inside the, in different chambers. areas, in different chambers, in different There are these little neatly made displays with sand, seashells, little figurines, coral. Okay. From the sea, because yeah. the underworld is representing an aquatic environment. Uh, okay. That's why it's there. So. And center stage in the display are skulls. They're the most noticeable part. Okay. And so these are human skulls? There's like <laughs> three human skulls in here? Yes, or because when they belong to the families of the same clan, oh, or they okay. were highest priests. So the skulls that you see in the offerings are... Aztec people, sí. not sac they were not sacrificed. No, 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 they weren't sacrificed. When we saw Barrett, it was a week. So it's like a tomb? Yes, it's a grave, a tomb. Okay, okay, yeah. okay. But when we reviewed the Aztecs, we look at them in the context of the conquest process, right? Do you think that plays a role in, in this internalized racism, that historical narrative? Yes, of course, I believe that. I believe that especially for people in Mexico City, which is uh, the most populated city in, in the country, of course we have that sentiment, that feeling kind of, of, of defeat, right? So yes, I believe that. 
Jose thinks undoing that Eurocentric story could be part of the solution to the problems his group's working on. You say part of the, the process is providing a more nuanced history. How do you go about that? Look at it as with different lenses. One of them is not creating this uh, narrative of good and bad, no? And this kind of dichotomic narrative, like they were the goods, we were the bads, or, or the opposite, because the opposite also happens, right. no? I have found people that say, well, the Aztecs were like the top of the world. And actually, no, of course they weren't perfect. And I don't like to romantize, you know, this, right. this kind of empires. They were what they were. I think that... Uh, the more we see the human with all, all their nuances and their contexts, uh, the better we have uh, an understanding of the past and of the future, and of course, uh, the present. And in the present, Racismo MX is busting the myths of the barbaric Aztecs and the Mestizo with a program nicknamed YALP, Y-A-L-P. The Young Anti-Racist Leadership Project, and we picked 10 uh, young people around Mexico to come to Mexico City and they have uh, top-notch classes with historians, economists, um, and people that lead the anti-racist movement in Mexico. We are creating leaders that I, I think uh, the anti-racist movement in Mexico need now. So the, this area where we are now used to be the ceremonial center. Oh, so that, was, that big thing was uh, one of the schools? Yes. Yes, the building we're seeing. Which one? Calmecac. Way Calmecac is where they learn science and arts. Science and arts, okay. Medicine, philosophy, history, laws. Do you think it's getting better? Like, do you think that more people are starting to understand the truth and how advanced the Aztecs were and not just this... Yes, more people, most Mexican people, they start to feel more proud. In general, the population, yes. I think so, yes. In those conversations with people by Temple Mayor, we could tell that after seeing the ruins, a fuller picture of the Aztecs was hitting some of them. But to me, it just amazes me that this whole thing was canals before, and pyramids. You know, it's just like mind-boggling. Yeah, yeah, a giant lake. And I just hadn't given it much thought. Like, I'm like, okay, there are some folks here that used to sacrifice people, but that's, this gives me a much deeper appreciation for things. Do you feel, like, proud? Yes. Okay. Yes. I, every time I come to Mexico City, I feel like those, those, those chills in my skin because I know I'm, I'm back to a place where everything started. Yeah, yeah. I never felt like I'm home in Los Angeles. But here, yes, as soon as I landed here, I'm like, I'm back, I'm back home. You're listening to Making Contact. In the second half of the show, Anthony is going to sit down with Aztec expert Camilla Townsend. Settle in, you history buffs. Townsend is going to unravel some of the biggest lies about the Aztecs and let us in on what was actually going down in Tenochtitlan. Stay with us. When I saw Camilla Townsend's TED Talk about the Aztecs, I knew I had to talk to her. It's called, We Should Change Our Minds About the World's Villains. She's a history professor at Rutgers University, and her recent book is called Fifth Son, A New History of the Aztecs. 
It's a new history because it's not based on the Spanish stories. She studied the Aztecs' language, Nahuatl, and read their own accounts. And when you do that, a much different picture of the Aztecs emerges, especially when it comes to human sacrifice. Probably the most important thing that needs to be said is that although it did happen, Mm -hmm. it didn't happen in the way or to the extent that we tend to understand. There's a sort of mythical understanding that hundreds or even thousands of people would be killed at a time. You know, heads Mm -hmm. are supposed to have been just rolling down the pyramids. One Spanish source from the 1500s said the Aztecs sacrificed over 80,000 people in a four-day period for the inauguration of Templo Mayor. This is almost certainly not true, but people are still citing this source, including a 2011 nonfiction book titled The Great Big Book of Horrible Things. It claims the Aztecs sacrificed over a million people. Again, not likely. But the book was accepted and celebrated by the public and some academics. The New York Times wrote a review. The thing is, figuring out just how many people the Aztecs killed in this way is very difficult, like solving a 500-year-old crime. But there are clues, like the physical evidence, actual skulls in the ground. For a long time, people had been surprised that in the the temple precinct there in, in central Mexico City, only about 400 skulls had been found. This yeah. did not make sense, given what we thought. But then in 2015, uh, the or the, the skull rack, the great, the Huayi Tsompantli, the great skull rack was found. And everybody thought, okay, now we're going to mm. find the thousands and thousands of skulls. Archaeologists carefully remove a human skull from an ancient Aztec site beneath Mexico City. It's just one of hundreds in what's been described as a tower of human skulls inside one of the main temples of the Aztec capital. But the fabled skull rack turned out to have just a few hundred skulls. If the Aztecs were butchering 80,000 people in a weekend, where were all their bones? And there's more evidence. In an original Nahuatl manuscript at a library in Paris, Townsend found an Aztec-written record of the events of a huge once-in-a-lifetime type sacrifice ceremony. That was a big celebration for them, kind Mm -hmm. of like the end of a century. Mm -hmm. And they went to the three most powerful kings, and two of the three agreed to come up with 20 captives each to mark this great celebration. These captives would then be sacrificed. So here they weren't bragging. This was just sort of a factual account Mm -hmm. of the events. And so I suspect this is actually what happened. Now, I feel very badly, again, for those 40 people, but it's not the thousands and thousands yeah. that the Spaniards are telling us. It's, it, it's, a, it's just a completely different sort of thing. Based on that and the number of skulls discovered by Mexican archaeologists in the area, Townsend estimates the Aztecs killed around 2,000 people in human sacrifice ceremonies in Tenochtitlan in about 100 years. It's impossible to know for sure, but that is nowhere near the estimate of 1 million that you find in the Great Big Book of Horrible Things. Of course it's tragic that those people died, but we should keep straight what did happen and what didn't happen Mm -hmm. and not assume that this was sort of an industrial killing machine uh, when it does not seem to have been. Townsend also points out that in the Nahuatl sources, sacrifice seems less like a twisted religious practice and more like a political move to intimidate enemies. Classic empire behavior, really. The victims were often prisoners of war, killed ceremonially instead of on the battlefield. I asked Townsend about another legend of the conquest, the idea that the Aztecs thought that Hernán Cortés, the leader of the Spanish conquest, was one of their gods in the flesh. It was something that seemed Mm -hmm. to be deeply pleasurable, I think, to European men to imagine that they were worshipping us. 
This idea isn't just in fiction, but in serious sources, like textbooks and BBC documentaries. And according to the legend, when Quetzalcoatl was expelled from Mexico, he promised that one day he would return. In the Aztec year one read, by an amazing chance, this was that year. But when you look at the actual Nahuatl sources, they did not expect their god Quetzalcoatl to walk on Earth again in 1519. Nor did any of the Nahuatl say anything about believing that Cortez was a god. Nor did Cortez himself at that mm -hmm. time, in, what he, in the records he wrote and sent back to Spain at that time, say this. This was something that was developed later. I think that these indigenous sons and grandsons in the late 1500s kind of leapt at this because they were looking for an explanation. Mm -hmm. You know, how had their dads and granddads lost so badly? They needed to understand it, and it made sense to them to think, oh, my forebears were just too devout for their own good. I found that to be enlightening to kind of understand the origin of this idea. And it, it, this is an interesting case of how myth can become fact, really, because it's not just like this a rumor or something. This is something that's taught in school, in official history books. Exactly. Once things like this start to get repeated over and over again, even by scholars, as you say, it becomes absolute fact, almost impossible to dislodge. Unfortunately, scholars have started to cite each other rather than mm. cite the original Nahuatl sources. And I think that's what we have to get, get down to business and doing more of. The Nahuatl sources don't just refute old Spanish myths. They bring the Aztec world to life. The Aztecs were proud of their culture, technology, and city, one of the most spectacular in the world at the time. Mexico City, or Tenochtitlan as it was called then, was known really far and wide for being particularly beautiful. The city was carefully planned, built in the middle of a great, now dried, lake. There were wide central roads and artificial islands constructed to be floating gardens. You could hear music. The call to prayer, so to speak, was done through conch shells, which were used like trumpets. It's a kind of very haunting music. They all had birds, beautiful caged songbirds. There were colorful flags everywhere. There were libraries and schools, and even a zoo with jaguars and exotic reptiles. There was a huge market uh, that actually, I believe this is true, put to shame most of the markets of Europe. And there was even a section where you could get lunch. I mean, in effect, fast food. It had everything from obsidian mirrors to rubber balls to barbers cutting hair. The Aztecs drank hot chocolate with honey and rose. They ate lobster, spicy tomato sauces, and lots of tortillas. Of course, all that's lost when the Aztecs are reduced to brutes in the Eurocentric version of their history. In that skewed version of the story, the Aztecs seem so strange and violent that they really don't seem human anymore. That idea has consequences in Mexico, as we heard from Jose, but it's also worked as powerful propaganda in the U.S. It started in a big way in this country a long time ago during the Mexican-American War. They actually distributed to soldiers a book called uh, History of the Conquest of Mexico, Hmm. And it's the soldiers in their diaries, some of them compared themselves, you know, just as it had been necessary for Cortez and his men to bring down the evil Aztecs, it was now necessary for them to bring down the evil Mexican general Santa Ana. And this may seem like it's a long time ago, but this story got repeated 
for generations, this book by William Prescott was well-loved for a long time. It's still in print. These ideas are also recognizable in more recent political rhetoric about the character of immigrants from Mexico. In reality, the Aztecs were vibrant people, flawed in familiar ways, with aspects both awesome and disturbing. Camilla's and Ismail's work shows that the history that we learn in school can have strange roots and cut out whole chapters in the story of humanity. In her book, Townsend describes how Aztec historians worked. They would stand before crowds and recount tales of the past dramatically, reciting lines of dialogue like actors. And then a different speaker would step up and do the same story but from another person's perspective. It was exciting, complete, and human. Going beyond the Eurocentric story to include the Aztec perspective isn't just more accurate and inclusive, it's more relatable and more interesting. It's a better story in every way. I'm Amy Gastelum. Thanks for listening to Making Contact. We'll see you next week.